1: members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly zoom hangouts with mike here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on the humanist report enjoy the show Most people
0: who watch this channel probably already know this, but 2023 was a particularly bad year when it comes to gay and trans rights, with more than 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills filed by Republicans in state legislatures across the country. But as bad as 2023 was... 2024 is already shaping up to be worse, if you could believe that. And I say this because journalist Aaron Reed tracked more than 100 anti-trans bills just five days into 2024, and five days later, on January 10th, we're nearly at 200 already. And most of these bills in 2024 are exactly what you'd expect, trans sports bans, bathroom bills, bans on gender-affirming care. But one thing that is arguably different in 2024 is that Republicans are more directly targeting trans adults. In other words, the pretense that these bills are meant to protect children is now gone, and they are explicitly policing trans existence when it comes to adults, if not trying to ban them Entirely. Now, let's walk through a couple of examples. These are pretty horrifying, but let's start with West Virginia. Senate Bill 194 would ban gender-affirming care for trans adults up to age 21 and also mandate mental health care providers, quote, cure trans people, i.e. subject them to conversion therapy. But it gets even worse because LGBTQ researcher Allison Chapman explains that a different bill in West Virginia, SB 197, would designate trans adults in public spaces as obscene in an effort to treat them like sex offenders by charging them with a felony if they get within 2,500 feet of a school. And if you're a trans parent with a kid in school, they're mandating that school officials just report you to the state. Now, if both of these bills were to pass, well, you would still thankfully have access to gender affirming care as an adult, so long as you're over 22. But your existence as a trans adult would be Very difficult. They want to classify your existence as obscene and treat you like a sex offender. But even saying that they want to treat you like a sex offender is an understatement because sex offenders are actually treated better in West Virginia because West Virginian law dictates that they're not allowed to be within 1000 feet of schools, whereas the distance for trans people is more than double at 2500 feet. So if this law were to pass, West Virginia would legally treat criminally convicted sex offenders better than innocent trans people. Just take a moment and let that sink in. And for those familiar with Project 2025, designating trans existence as pornographic is how they actually plan to legally eradicate trans people from existence. And Dame Magazine actually shares the relevant passage from Project 2025, which reads, quote, pornography manifested today in omnipresent propagation of transgender ideology and sexualization of children, for instance, is not a political guardian, not inextricably binding up disparate claims about free speech, property rights, sexual sexual liberation, and child welfare. It has no claim to First Amendment protection. Its purveyors are child predators and misogynistic exploiters of women. Their product is as addictive as any illicit drug and as psychologically destructive as any crime. Pornography should be outlawed. The people who produce and distribute it should be imprisoned. Educators and public librarians who purvey it should be classed as registered sex offenders. And telecommunications and technology firms that facilitate its spread should be shuttered. So when Once they classify trans existence as obscene, they then subsequently police it in the same way that they would any other inappropriate material like porn. And that's the goal of Project 2025 under the next Republican administration, but As we now know, states are already trying to enact that very same agenda, albeit on a smaller scale, obviously. But West Virginia isn't the only state that's targeting trans adults, because in Ohio, as the New Republic reports, Republicans actually passed a bill banning gender-affirming care for trans youth and a sports ban, but thankfully, the Republican governor, Mike DeWine, actually showed some courage, and he vetoed it. And he didn't just veto it he denounced it saying quote were i to sign house bill 68, or were house bill 6-8 to become law ohio would be saying that the state that the government knows better what is medically best for a child than the two people who love that child the most the parents now if we just stopped right there you would probably feel optimistic so uh click out of this video if you don't want your mood to be spoiled any more than it already has been but um This is is not an instance where a Republican chose to grow a heart and a spine and do the right thing. This is the humanist report, and there are no happy endings here, my friend. So after he vetoed that bill, Republicans then threatened to override his veto since they have the numbers to do that, and in an effort to thwart that veto, he proposed an executive order addressing this issue that is literally worse than the bill that he vetoed after defending his veto of that transphobic bill as the aclu of ohio points out his executive order would amount to a de facto ban on gender affirming care for trans youth and trans adults and this all is because of the wording of his executive order now we're not going to get too in depth when it comes to the specifics here because it's very complicated but if you are interested in learning the details Aaron Reed has a really lengthy write-up about this executive order and how it would lead to an end to gender affirming care for everyone in Ohio. And basically, it would regulate trans healthcare out of existence, which is a strategy that's similar to trap laws used to restrict abortion access before Roe was overturned. But I mean, when it comes to his executive order, it may just be irrelevant now because Republicans did end up overriding his veto earlier today. So gender affirming care is banned in Ohio. And on top of that, uh, trans girls can no longer compete in school sports. All like 12 of them that probably exist in Ohio. Now they weren't done attacking trans people in Ohio yet, because the House Education Committee held a meeting to discuss how they can police bathroom usage of trans college students, and Erin Reed followed the hearing if you're interested to see how that went, but what she found was really interesting. So one lawmaker in support of more bans on trans people was maybe a little bit too honest and just admitted that she wants to kill trans people. So Ohio Representative Beth Lear quoted the Bible saying, in Luke 17, the Bible says that if you cause one of the little ones to stumble, maybe they hang a millstone around your neck and throw them into the sea so an elected official in ohio is publicly admitting that she believes the proper punishment for trans people for corrupting the youth by existing should be death they're just admitting what their end game here is and it is horrifying to see that now I wish we could move on from Ohio, but we can't yet because uh, there's another way that they are targeting trans people. Now, assume you're a trans person that lives in Ohio and you see them pass all these laws against you and you want to do something, you want to run for office to counter what they're doing. Well, now they're trying to just ban trans people from running for office. Now, trans candidate Vanessa Joy explains that she was ruled ineligible because she didn't use her dead name to run for office. So here's why she can't run for Ohio State House, according to her.
2: Vanessa Joy submitted paperwork to run as a Democrat for the Ohio House of Representatives, and she got enough valid signatures to qualify. But officials rejected her, citing a state law that mandates candidates must provide any name changes within the last five years. In an Instagram post, Joy called the law, quote, a brand new way that Republicans can use to keep trans people off the ballot. In response, a representative for the Ohio Secretary of State told NBC News, and I'm quoting, the law applies to everyone. It is cynical and unfair to criticize the Stark County Board of Elections for their unanimous and bipartisan decision to follow Ohio law. Vanessa Joy joins me now. Thanks for being with us. What's your response to that? And I wonder if you think you might have a successful appeal here.
3: Well, I never said that it doesn't apply unilaterally to everyone in Ohio. I actually agree with the law. And it's, it's designed to keep bad players from changing their names and running for office. The law just happens to be discriminatory by proxy to the trans, uh, to the trans community. So um, I honestly don't think my appeal is going to go very far. Uh, But I, I just found out that they did not receive it so when i get off with you i have to drive it over to the board of elections to submit it in person
2: what is the basis of your appeal and and what do you want folks to know about why this is so important to the trans community
3: the basis of my appeal is the 2024 candidate guide for the state of ohio put out by the secretary of state's office it does not mention anything in its 33 33 page length about this particular law, nor do the petitions themselves mention anything about it or have any place to put a second name on it. It's a barrier to entry for trans people because we, many of us, our dead names are dead. It's not something, it's it's our past. It's It's not who we are.
0: So if trans people in Ohio refuse to use their dead names and refuse to invalidate their own identities, then they can't run. They're ineligible. It's unbelievable, really. Now, the same thing happened to Arian Childry, another trans candidate running for public office in Ohio, was apparently deemed ineligible because of the same thing. So we're going to have to wait and see what happens in these two cases. At the time that I record this, we don't know the outcome, but I think that Vanessa's appeal is probably going to influence Arian's case. But side note... Vanessa's stepfather is actually a member of Ohio State House, and she says that he actually voted for the gender-affirming care ban even though he has a trans stepdaughter. Imagine being that hateful against your own child. It's just despicable. Now, the good news is that she's never met him, I wonder why, but it just begs the question, What the fuck is wrong with Republicans in Ohio? I mean, you can ask that question about Republicans, broadly speaking, but specifically in Ohio. Is there something in the water? Why are they so obsessed with trans people? Like what what's going on there? You all have some issues you've got to work out like what the fuck is happening here like i have previously stated that i genuinely unironically believe that republicans are ontologically evil but in ohio it's like they saw all of the anti-trans legislation across the country and they thought you know what that's not enough we have to go above and beyond to find new ways to fuck over trans people and police their existence it is genuinely exhausting but unfortunately we're not done yet because when it comes to Indiana, Aaron Reid also reports Indiana has filed a bill to end all recognition of transgender people. It is one of several states to do so, perfectly mirroring Russia's 2020 law and Hungary's 2023 law. I will also note it updates the definition for gay marriage as well in preparation for overturning Obergefell. Because, of course, but let's not forget about Florida, because if a new Republican bill passes, you can soon be charged with defamation and fined up to thirty five thousand dollars. If you call someone a racist and that same penalty applies to anyone who calls someone a homophobe or a transphobe. So if this bill passes, what do you call someone who's being explicitly and overtly racist or homophobic or transphobic? I guess we'll have to settle on fuckface but i mean the goal here is to obviously police the language that you use to denounce the people who are oppressing you and taking away your rights they don't want to just destroy you but stop you from resisting even minimally speaking out against their oppression as they destroy you but the good news is that regardless of all the things that they do we will never stop fighting back and it's happening right now. For example, five families are suing the state of Louisiana over their ban on gender affirming care. LGBTQ Nation reports the lawsuit alleges the bill violates parents' rights to make health care decisions for their children, according to a press release from Lambda Legal. It also claims the law violates the state constitution by denying trans kids equal protection by discriminating based on gender identity and sex. It also says the law violates the kids' constitutional right to accept or reject medical care based on the support of their parents and doctors. So I'm glad to see them fight back. And when it comes to this case in Louisiana, I am cautiously optimistic. And I say cautiously optimistic because even though LGBTQ plus people have had a lot of victories, if not the most victories in courts, we can't pretend as if Republican extremism hasn't also infiltrated our judicial system too. So just keep that in mind. But if you're exhausted from hearing all of these stories, listen, I don't blame you. It is depressing to do research for videos like this and see just how bad it's gotten. And it's easy to feel hopeless when things are so bad. And if you're a trans person, your very existence is under attack nonstop. But my promise to all trans people that are watching this video is that we will never stop advocating for you and never stop fighting for you. And even though things are really bad right now, I genuinely do believe that things will get better. And just keep in mind that progress doesn't always trend in one direction. It's much more cyclical than a lot of us would like to admit. So we are going to continue to have these battles, probably for the foreseeable future, unfortunately, because Republicans don't look like they're going to relent anytime soon and it may get even worse but it's important to know that these republicans even if they're not going to stop we're also not going to stop as well we're going to have to fight 10 times harder and we will never stop fighting so keep that in mind because if you feel alone and distraught from this you're not alone you have a lot of people fighting alongside you this time Well, it turns out that Twitter, the free speech beacon of the planet, according to Elon Musk and his fanboys, just experienced another purge of not only journalists, but conspicuously Elon Musk critics as well. Harvard Law's Alejandro Caraballo noticed it this morning, writing there was a massive purge of journalists on Twitter, Steven Zetti of the Texas Observer and Ken Klippenstein of The Intercept. In addition, blogger Rob Rousseau and podcast True Pod. She adds, they also got Z-Squirrel and Liam Nissan, both shitposting accounts that were critical of Elon and Bill Ackman. Now, when it comes to Z-Squirrel, they said they weren't given a reason for the suspension, but suspects that their criticism of Bill Ackman may be wise since he's friends with elon musk and when it comes to another account the liam nissan named sissy spacex they responded to elon musk promoting the white supremacist great replacement theory again writing get a load of goddamn apartheid clyde over here which is hilarious now i just want to pause for a moment to point out that sissy spacex and apartheid clyde were both temporarily trending on twitter after elon musk banned this account which is hilarious because this would not happen had he not banned them. But there's this Streisand effect that he never seems to learn about every single time this happens. But regardless, Apartheid Clyde is the perfect name for Elon Musk. Now, the good news is that all of these accounts were actually restored fairly quickly. But the reason why they were restored is we'll call it interesting. Caraballo writes, I didn't know this could get worse, but it did. Elon reinstated all the accounts because Jackson Hinkle, an anti-Semitic white supremacist, asked them about it. And Musk responded saying, I will investigate. Obviously, it is okay to be critical of anything, but it is not okay to call for extreme violence as that is illegal. Now, these accounts didn't do that, so he's just talking out of his ass. And he also told George Galloway that he'd look into it and told Glenn Greenwald, quote, we do sweep for spam slash scam accounts and sometimes real accounts get caught up in them i'm sure while i'm thankful that these accounts were reinstated i'm not buying his excuse there have been other accounts like juniper for example that happened to be critical of elon musk and they were also inexplicably banned You're not going to convince me that this was an accident or part of a spam sweep. It's clear Elon Musk is a thin-skinned narcissist with an axe to grind, and it's not the first time that his pettiness has dictated policy on Twitter. Maybe I would be a little bit more charitable if this were the first time that this happened, but... He spent the last year chumming it up with far-right fascist accounts exclusively and has at times gone after leftist accounts when fascists told him those are the ones that he should be targeting. We've we've done videos about this, so I refuse to believe that this wasn't deliberate. Now, when he came back, Ken Klippenstein pointed this out. Quote, This was the last time I reported on Elon Musk before my ban about his little-noticed meeting with Netanyahu to discuss the security aspects of artificial intelligence. Steve Manasseh, responded to Elon Musk saying, show me the Twitter files on this one because I highly doubt that it's a coincidence a number of high-profile journalists were suspended all at once. Exactly. And Rob Rousseau simply responds saying, well, that was exciting, I bet. Now, ironically, as multiple accounts critical of Elon Musk got purged, two people who are never critical of Elon Musk, dare I say they're Elon Musk dick riders to an extent, they actually commended him for his commitment to free speech while these journalists and shit posters were purged Why? Well, because they announced that they have new shows that they'll be posting on Twitter. Former CNN host Don Lemon announced his new show, and it's going to be airing first on Twitter, which he calls, quote, the biggest space for free speech in the world. Very, very interesting time to post this. Now, shameless right-wing grifter Tulsi Gabbard took her praise for Musk to an even further level, announcing her new show, writing, freedom of speech is a fundamental right in America. Sadly, we live in a time where debate, dialogue, and dissent can be cause for cancellation, and censorship by those in power to defend free speech we must use it i'm announcing a new partnership today with twitter where under elon musk's leadership free speech is not only protected it is celebrated and again i have to point this out because it is so absurd that i can't let it be lost on us she's saying all of this about free speech and how elon musk is a leader As multiple accounts critical of Elon Musk were purged, and he did not bring them back until people pointed out that there was this discrepancy. These accounts are all of a sudden gone. This is weird. Many of them are journalists, journalists who have been critical of Elon Musk, and a lot of them are shit posters. Also, coincidentally, critical of Elon Musk. Now, the reason why they don't view themselves as hypocrites is because when Tulsi Gabbard, for example, says free speech, she doesn't mean free speech in the general sense. She means free speech exclusively for fascists because she never has anything to say about bans on books, bans on BDS, but she has so many talking points about how woke ideologues and woke indoctrination is the real threat to free speech. But actual free speech violations? mm, Tulsi Gabbard doesn't care. And that's because she's a grifter who doesn't actually have any core political beliefs. She's just saying what she believes is going to get her a platform. And it's funny because despite being a former member of Congress and presidential candidate and Fox News contributor, she can barely survive on YouTube. So she has to post on Twitter where the billionaire owner of that platform is going to try to shove her content down our throats since she couldn't grow our organically. Meritocracy is a myth, my friends. But I do want to get back to Elon Musk, because aside from the usual hypocrisy that we can expect from him when it comes to free speech, you know, it is genuinely dangerous to see him use this platform to push white supremacy at the top of his lungs. We already saw one tweet where he pushed the Great Replacement conspiracy theory, but that wasn't an outlier. He does this all the time. He just did it yesterday as well, saying Democrats are importing voters, and he's been tweeting nonstop about immigration, which is interesting for the fact that he is literally literally an immigrant himself. He was not born in the United States. He is a South African who moved here. But after moving to America, he wants to close the door to everyone else behind him. It's so disgusting and disgraceful, but I want to dive into this just a little bit. Because when he talks about immigration, he is specifically against Latin American immigration. And this is so infuriating to me to see Americans who live on stolen land complain about people moving here from Latin America after our failed policies destroyed their countries and destabilized their countries. But when it comes to Elon Musk, it's interesting because he is fear-mongering about the threat that immigration poses while simultaneously fear-mongering about declining birth rates. So he's previously warned about a big reckoning coming due to low birth rates and has vocalized concern about people not having kids and even voiced fears about the global population not being big enough now the global population Is larger than it's ever been, despite resources being limited, despite climate change and the threat that that poses. But capitalists like Elon Musk tend to concern troll about declining birth rates, especially in developed countries, because that to them is viewed as an economic issue. If the population in a particular country isn't always exponentially growing, then endless economic growth isn't a possibility. Profits will also not be able to grow exponentially, they'll eventually fall, and that's a threat to their wealth. Now, there's multiple ways in theory to address this if you actually see that as a problem, which I do not. I think we have to take care of the people that we have right now on this planet and not encourage people to have more children. But that's just like a personal decision. It's it's not a big problem. Like we're doing just fine. But the most obvious way that you can address this if you care about it is through immigration. If citizens aren't having kids, you supplement population growth with immigration. But yet, Elon Musk is strongly against immigration, especially from Latin America. Ask yourself why that is. Excuse me, why that is. He wants the white kind of population growth. Excuse me, the right kind of population growth. I keep misspeaking. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? He doesn't want brown people to move to this country period, full stop. He wants the population growth to be exponential, but white population growth, so that way there's a higher proportion of white people than there is brown people here. This is what he's hinting at. If you look at all of his tweets and you put them all together and you step back, you see all of the pieces of the puzzle together, and he's sending a very clear message. And one of his defenders might say that I'm being uncharitable here, and he's not worried about the decline of white birth rates in particular. He's never said that, which is true. But this is more about improving economic conditions for everyone, and bigger populations means a bigger economy, which is good for all of us especially for him because it means more profits in theory. But he doesn't actually give a shit about improving conditions and a bigger economy for everyone else. And I say this because he has gone on a warpath against the one government agency that has been effective at protecting workers that he wants to exploit, the NLRB. As More Perfect Union points out, Elon Musk wants the NLRB declared unconstitutional. NLRB prosecutors issued a complaint against SpaceX for illegally firing eight employees who criticized Elon Musk. Hmm, I'm sensing a pattern here. So Musk and his SpaceX lawyers called the labor board the very definition of tyranny. Now as Timothy Noah of the New Republic points out, he might actually get what he wants here if his goal is to have the NLRB declared unconstitutional because, Noah explains, SpaceX this week filed the lawsuit arguing that the NLRB, which Congress created before Musk's parents were born, ought not to exist. Not content to run Twitter into the ground, Musk now wants to repeal the New Deal. Naturally, that would be catastrophic. but this isn't one of musk's nuttier crusades he's got a lot of allies sitting on the supreme court musk's spacex lawsuit argues that the nlrb is quote an unconstitutionally structured agency because its administrative law judges or aljs can't be fired by the president because the nlrb performs both prosecutorial and judicial functions thereby violating separation of powers and because the nlrb's board members though appointed by the president can be fired only for cause his lawsuit also says suggests that Congress can't delegate judicial functions to an independent agency, an ancient argument the Supreme Court set aside when it reconciled itself in the late 1930s to the New Deal's alphabet agencies. Now, Noah explains that Musk could actually pull this off. He could get the NLRB off his back by shutting it down entirely. And the arguments that he's making against the agency are right in line with the legal arguments that conservatives like Steve Bannon have made. Like when you hear people like Steve Bannon talk about the administrative state being dismantled, he uses this same line of logic that Elon Musk's lawyers are using in court against the NLRB. Now, we're just getting a small snapshot of Noah's article overall, but the TLDR version is that Musk could do this. Like, like Just stop for a moment and think about how horrifying this is a billionaire who doesn't want to be held accountable for worker violations could just get that agency shut down entirely. Now, we don't know yet, but the fact that it's even a possibility should worry all of us. So, I mean, if you're under this delusion that Musk cares about improving economic conditions, his union busting and attack on worker rights and the NLRB say otherwise. So we're in this situation where we have watched the world's richest man become radicalized in real time, and he's using his position of power to silence critics and shape political discourse to his liking. And This right here is why leftists say that billionaires should not exist, because exploitation and greed aren't the only issues that I have with that level of wealth. In a capitalist system, wealth translates directly into power. And if you have enough wealth, you can directly impact our democracy and institutions in a profound way. And Elon Musk is demonstrating that to us in real time. And none of us have the ability to vote Musk out of power right? We can't say you don't get to control Twitter any longer because he's not an elected official. So he has all of this wealth and none of the accountability that comes with that power. We just have to cross our fingers and hope for the best. That's, That's the level of recourse afforded to us by this system. Tyrannical billionaires can do what they want and we have no say. But Keep in mind that there are more of us than there are of them. And this perverted system of exploitation and grotesque wealth only exists so long as we allow it to. So it's a gross system. It's despicable. But just because we have to fear censorship or repercussions doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak out against Elon Musk. We should speak out louder than ever because what he's doing on Twitter, what he's pushing for is harmful.
4: I'm wondering though, what would then be your justification for removing Joe Biden from the ballot in Missouri? Has he engaged in your mind in some kind of insurrection?
5: Uh, there have been allegations that he's engaged in insurrection. How so? And Alder has- no, please let me finish.
4: There have only been you can't allegations- You can say something like that and not back it up. What, what do you mean?
5: I am continuing, but you interrupted me before I could back it up.
4: Go ahead. Are you sir. scared of the truth? Oh, I am not terrified of the truth at all. It seems like you there might be. Been, Let's see what you have to there say. There have
5: only been allegations against President. What allegations? President
4: Trump. President
5: Trump has never been um, uh, adjudicated guilty sure. in a court of law. What of did Joe
4: Biden so, do in your mind that equates insurrection? What allegations are you talking about?
5: Um, I have I have seen allegations from the lieutenant governor of Texas that has said that the that uh, Joe Biden. Has has uh has an in, uh, uh, been part of insurrection or rebellion. We've seen the president, uh, sorry, the governor of Florida say the same thing. Insurrection Those are over
4: what? What what did the governor of Texas say that that Joe Biden was causing an insurrection over? If you're going to make the I, claim, give me give me some specifics. Are you just going to cite me. No, wait, the
5: wait governor
4: of Texas or Florida, and not actually say what they are arguing? Do you know what they're arguing?
0: You just watched Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft malfunction when he was asked to legally justify his threat to remove Joe Biden from the ballot in his state over Biden's alleged participation in, quote, insurrection, which is very rich coming from a Republican, I know. But his argument is basically, well, if they can do it, then we can do it too. But it literally doesn't work that way. And I feel like I shouldn't have to explain this to somebody who went to law school when I did not. But the CNN host is going to explain this to him as well. And he's just not going to get it. But let's watch
5: all what I'm telling you is this. They made allegations and all it took for the president for former President Trump to be taken off the ballot in Colorado and in Maine were allegations. We should not be a country that removes people from the ballot based on allegations. I think you can agree with that.
4: I think it, it depends to a degree. Oh, so because your guy can be removed you, from the My ballot, guy, the Joe guy. Biden is not no, my guy. You don't know who either. my guy is. The point is, it sir, it's the point is that it's not clear whether the 14th Amendment is self-executing or not. In, in other words, it doesn't matter to a court at that point whether there was a conviction of Donald Trump for insurrection or not
0: now the CNN host is absolutely correct here's what section 3 of the 14th amendment actually says quote no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office civil or military under the United States and then it goes on but basically if they have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof but Congress may by a vote of two-thirds of each house remove such disability so as you can see the 14th amendment does not state whether or not there has to be a conviction it just says somebody may not be president if they engaged in insurrection Now Trump has unquestionably engaged in insurrection and gave comfort to enemies thereof. That's why states like Maine and Colorado are opting to remove him from the ballot, and rightfully so. Protecting democracy necessitates the removal of candidates who vocalize their intent to destroy democracy. And as much as I dislike Joe Biden, he hasn't engaged in a literal insurrection, so removing him from the ballot would be absurd. I shouldn't have to explain this to the Secretary of State because, again— This is somebody who went to law school. He should know this. But his threat is just him basically going tit for tat because he's mad. And he basically admitted this on Twitter, writing, what has happened in Colorado and Maine is disgraceful and undermines our republic. While I expect the Supreme Court to overturn this, if not, secretaries of state will step in and ensure the new legal standard for real Donald Trump applies equally to Joe Biden. Look, that sounds fair to me. If it is the case that Joe Biden, like Trump, stages an actual insurrection and tries to stay in power after losing an election, then yes, by all means, disqualify him from the ballot as well apply it all equally but that's not what he's talking about here instead he talks about this new legal standard new legal standard what are you talking about it's just a legal standard if there's any new legal standard it's the fact that for the first time we're holding somebody as powerful as a former president accountable or at least we're trying to we'll see how it turns out when it comes to uh, the court But I mean, he thinks that this just basically means that Republicans can remove Democrats from the ballots if Democrats can remove Republicans from the ballots. But... First and foremost, that is a childish line of logic. And the difference here is that the courts made this decision, or at least one court made this decision, and another secretary of state made the decision. And we can't just ignore the most important fact. Trump committed an insurrection, which is why they're doing this. It's not like they're just choosing to remove Trump from the ballot because they don't like him. He committed a fucking insurrection. That inconvenient fact is something that he just doesn't want to acknowledge, and Colorado is well within their right to do exactly what they did based on a clear reading of the Constitution. NBC News explains Colorado's Supreme Court based its ruling on the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment, which bars those who engaged in insurrection from running for various federal offices. Now, when it comes to Maine, it is a bit different. Quote, the Maine case is slightly different than the one in Colorado. There, the Democratic Secretary of State made the determination that Trump was ineligible." For the ballot. So, when it comes to Maine, you can say, yes, a Democrat removed Trump from the ballot. But when it comes to Colorado, a court made this determination. So, either way, Trump actually did do what they're accusing him of doing. So, it's just wild to me that he's pretending as if they're doing this just out of nowhere, just inexplicably. We're just going to take him off the ballot. He did an insurrection. I mean, it's just, it's wild to me. But since they're doing this to Trump, that means that I can do it to Biden because, uh, as the Secretary of State surely knows, that's exactly how the law works. Now, he didn't specifically explain this, but the insurrection allegation that he wouldn't speak to comes from Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who made this very sound legal argument, quote, Seeing what happened in Colorado tonight makes me think, except we believe in democracy in Texas, maybe we should take Joe Biden off the ballot in Texas for allowing 8 million people to cross the border since he's been president, disrupting our state, far more than anything anyone else has done in recent history, Patrick said in an interview with Fox News anchor Laura Ingram. So as you can see, we're getting very strong, big-brained arguments from Republicans who want to remove Biden from the ballot. Well, they did it so we can too. And it never ceases to amaze me how they'll decry Biden's open border policy when he's been almost as ruthless and xenophobic as Trump, but open border because he's president. So what he's doing is bad by default. It's just so ridiculous. They're so unserious. But I do want to get back to Jay Ashcroft and this interview because it was a complete disaster and calling it a disaster would be an understatement because This was an embarrassment and he just couldn't legally justify Biden's exclusion from the ballot. He's just pissed. And he can't say that. So he's trying to like cloak his butthurtness in some sort of legal justification, but he's got nothing and that's evident. So he says that this is basically bad because it sets a precedent where you can just remove candidates from the ballots, which again, ignores the fact that Trump literally engaged in an insurrection. But he says that, oh, this is gonna be this new standard where if they do it, we do it. And this is really gonna be chaotic, except it doesn't work that way. But let's listen to how he justifies it.
5: Um, The brief that I will be filing with the United United States Supreme Court is not going to say that President Trump is a bad person. It's not going to say that he's a good person. What it's going to say is that this extrajudicial means of removing people from the ballot is catastrophic to our country if it's allowed to continue. Because if Democrats can do it, you know that Republicans will do it. And if Republicans well, will do it, that then Democrats point,
4: will do it more. To, to that point, Secretary, in order to remove President Biden from the ballot, according to your state constitution, you would need to go to court. What do you think would be your strongest argument? No, not
5: argument? at all. Not, not no? at all.
4: If your you state constitution what? actually states that the Secretary of State lacks authority to assess qualifications of a candidate to determine whether to place a candidate's name on a primary ballot. That's according to section... Sir? Sir? 115, 387 is, of your state constitution. Sir,
5: what I'm saying is
4: if the Supreme
5: Court upholds the ruling out of Colorado and what Which went to in court Colorado,
4: to disqualify Donald Trump from the ballot. So you according sir, to your state constitution, listening. would need to sir, go to court.
5: Sir Sir, let's just be clear. First of sir. all, you've already said you're not an attorney and you don't know what happened in Colorado. I was. Happy I know to what happened in
4: Colorado, that. sir. What I said was that I didn't read through all of the evidence specifically to be able to qualify whether there was hearsay or not. To get back to my question, you well, said that, that you would problem. decide to remove Joe Biden from the ballot in your state. According to your state constitution, which I just read to you from, it says you need to go to court. I'm asking you what you think your strongest argument is.
5: And I continue to try to answer your questions and you continue to try to tell me stuff that just isn't true. That's and not here's factual, sir. you made
4: you made an accusation Here, about me not knowing something. I'm trying to clarify it for you. You can choose to Here, answer the well, question or just continue deflecting. What is the strongest argument you would make in court to like remove Joe Biden from the ballot? Go.
0: Amazing. Listen, if you've ever doubted whether or not you're intelligent or if you have what it takes to get through school or in particular law school, just keep in mind that if this guy can do it, you can do it, too. You can do anything if this guy graduated law school. Now, with that being said, though, I am thankful that he's choosing to defend this position on national television because it shows you how unserious these threats to remove Biden from the ballot are. But I just wanna show you one last clip because he was very annoyed and he should be because the CNN host kept the pressure on and good on that CNN host and it made him look like shit. So pay close attention to the end because as this interview closes, just watch his facial reactions here.
4: We gotta leave the conversation there, but I very much appreciate your time. You're welcome back anytime, sir. Thank you. Of course, have a good day, happy new year. Stay with CNN News Central. We're back in just moments.
0: Seems like somebody's fifis were hurt, like he was actually rolling his eyes on national television. We're talking about a grown man here in a position of power. Amazing. And I've just got to ask, how did you actually expect this to go? Because you know that you can't actually use your position as Missouri Secretary of State to just remove Biden from the ballot Because you're mad like, you know, this right literally like you actually are aware that this is something that you don't have the power to do because you haven't presented a legally justifiable well reasoned argument for doing what you say you're going to do. So you can't just say I'm going to do it because I'm mad and they did it. That's logic that a six-year-old wouldn't even use because by then they'd come up with better reasons to justify their actions. But you, a grown man in a position of power, can't do that. And then you're mad at the host for asking questions that you refuse to answer. It's just astonishing to me. Now, if he actually cared about democracy, he too would support Trump being removed from the ballot. I get it. He's not going to do that because he is a hack and a Trump sycophant. But the reason why you want to remove people like Donald Trump from the ballot after they engaged in insurrection is because we have to protect democracy. I get that it feels counterintuitive to say we should protect democracy by removing somebody from the ballot, but Restricting somebody's right to participate in democracy is essential if that person has either engaged in insurrection or is expressing clear intent to abuse power and violate the Constitution. We have a duty to protect our democratic system by not letting people participate in it if they are against the system that they want to participate in. So protecting democracy means putting limitations on who is qualified to run. In the same way that tolerance doesn't require us to tolerate intolerance, democracy doesn't require us to allow autocrats to participate in democracy. Now, all of this is probably moot anyway because I'd be shocked if our far-right illegitimate Supreme Court even allowed this to stand, but it's just interesting to see how detached from reality the party of law and order has become, isn't it?
2: I had never been in politics before and I'd never been through a divorce, something I never intended to go through. I've made my own personal mistakes and have owned up and apologized for them. It's tested my faith, my strength, and my abilities both as a mom and a congresswoman. It's been humbling and challenging, but it's also given me perspective and helped me grow. Mm
0: As you just saw, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert claims that the last year was really difficult for her, and it is understandable as to why she would say that. She not only went through a divorce last year, but she also got caught jerking off her date during a Beetlejuice play. But these mistakes have given her the opportunity to learn and grow, as she claimed in that video. Now, that was a video released on December 27th, where she announced that she's switching districts and addressed her past controversies. But with less than a week into the new year, it's evident that she still has a lot more growing to do do because she is now reportedly under investigation by Colorado police for a physical altercation that allegedly occurred between her and her ex-husband at a restaurant in Colorado. Roger Sollenberger of the Daily Beast explains, on Saturday night, three years to the day after supporters of Donald Trump attacked the U.S. Capitol building, election-objecting Representative Lauren Boebert is the subject of an active police investigation into an alleged physical altercation with her ex-husband, Jason Boebert, at a restaurant in her district Saturday. night. According to the aide, on Saturday, Jason Bobert had called the police to the Miner's Claim restaurant in Silt, claiming that he was a victim of domestic violence. The aide emphasized that Lauren Bobert denies any allegation of domestic violence on her part, and that the events as depicted in social media posts on Saturday were not accurate. An anti bobert super PAC called American Milk Rakers first publicized the rumor of the incident on Saturday night in eye-popping posts on X, formerly Twitter. On Sunday, Jason Bobert told the Daily Beast that the details of the altercation on American Muckrakers was accurate and that his ex-wife had punched him in the face multiple times. Jason Boebert also purported to have a witness to the events and said that he took back his claim that police were too aggressive with him. Quote, I respect our officers and appreciate what they have to endure. I shouldn't have said anything negative toward them. I was unhappy. Jason Boebert added that he was going to phone the police and ask them to call off the investigation. So there is a lot to unpack here and this is actually pretty serious. Now, first and foremost, as much as I enjoy the schadenfreude here, I do sympathize with their children here because they're now going to have to learn that their parents were allegedly in a physical altercation in public, which is probably going to affect them in a negative way for a really long time. So I do feel bad for the children in this situation who have to grow up in that volatile, violent environment. And even though their parents are wealthy and powerful, money can't fix everything. So I do feel really bad for them. Now, in terms of The lead up to the incident, Sullenberger explains in the article that Jason tried to hug her when she arrived at his home to pick up their son, and she kind of stopped him, putting her hand on his chest. He felt bad about that, so he later called her up to apologize and wanted to meet her at a restaurant to talk, and then she agreed to do that, and that's when the physical altercation reportedly took place they were apparently arguing and then she alleged that he seemingly was going to grab her based on a motion that he made this is all in the article if you want to read it and that's when she allegedly punched him and he subsequently called the police and claimed that he's the victim of domestic violence she claims that it was self-defense because of his demeanor and what he was seemingly going to do grab her But I mean, here's her response, because they're both making these claims. This is a he said, she said situation, and we're really not going to know who's guilty based on what they're just saying. We have to see what the evidence says, but... In her response, she's denying any wrongdoing. Quote, in an official statement to the Daily Beast on Sunday, Lauren Boebert said, this is a sad situation for all that keeps escalating and another reason, I'm moving. I didn't punch Jason in the face and no one was arrested. I will be consulting with my lawyer about the false claims he made against me and evaluate all of my legal options. So first of all, it is weird that she claims she's moving, meaning she's switching districts because of her ex. I feel like that's not a good reason to switch districts Like you can move to a different area in your district. It's a very large district. So that's kind of weird that you're like basically subjecting your constituents to this because of your own personal problems. But putting that aside, she is making an implicit threat here to file a defamation suit against him, which might kind of explain why he's trying to call out the investigation into her. Because if they do determine that his claims are untrue, that could bolster a potential defamation suit. So I don't know. This is just speculation. But it is impossible to know who's actually telling the truth here because we all know that Lauren Bobert is a compulsive liar, but her ex-husband isn't a good person either and he has a history of domestic violence. In 2004, he was actually arrested for harassing and physically assaulting his then-girlfriend. And in the same year, he was arrested for exposing himself at a bowling alley while him and Bobert were dating. And she was a minor then, by the way. And even though she saw the incident, she denies it. So even though she is a liar, I think that given his history of domestic violence, violence. I think it's reasonable for her to perceive his body language in a violent way if she is indeed telling the truth. But regardless of who's in the right here, Lauren Boebert has made it very clear that all of these personal issues aside, she is not qualified to be a member of Congress. Put aside this, put aside the Beetlejuice incident, this is somebody who has no core political beliefs. She's just a hate monger, and a racist. And what's crazy is that she managed to turn off even the most diehard Trump supporters who are growing disillusioned with her. And I say this because Ryan Biller of Politico published a lengthy piece about how some of her far-right constituents were just tired of her antics and felt like she was out of touch with the district. And let me just say this, I do find it funny whenever Republican voters feel buyer's remorse for the politicians that they elect because they keep electing these elitist blowhards who tell you that they're not going to do do shit for you, and then when they get elected, they don't do shit but then they act surprised, still in outrage. Now, I say this because one of Boebert's constituents that Biller, the author of that political article I just referenced talked to, turned on her because of a Fox News appearance where she complained about COVID masks, saying, quote, I still blame Biden and the Democrats for the skyrocketing costs. Reid explained, of course you do. But I got a weird sort of feeling when Boebert was ranting about masks because by that point, masks were irrelevant here. What mattered was the cost of gas and food and rent. It seemed she was out of touch now this quote is interesting because it comes from a quintessential maga chud the article says that she has a let's go brandon bumper sticker and even has a dartboard with biden's face on it and i mean talk about virtue signaling but she's mad that bobert wasn't focusing on the issues that mattered to her economic issues. Now, I'm glad to see anecdotes of her constituents turning on her because that's good. She's a bad person and a bad representative. But I've just got to go back to the constituent here. What exactly did this person expect? Lauren Boebert ran on nothing and delivered exactly what she ran on. Nothing. This isn't a situation like Pennsylvanians voting for John Fetterman, where he ran as a progressive and then turned into a Republican a year later. She came exactly as advertised. She is a vapid racist conspiracy theorist who doesn't care about her constituents. So I just find it insulting and annoying to see some of her constituents, of all people, exhibit buyer's remorse after they thrusted her upon us. I mean, if you are surprised that she turned out to be a know-nothing dumbass, then that says a lot about you and not just about Lauren Boeber. Now, as much as I'm sick and tired of these fascist Republican politicians, they keep getting elected because that's what the Republican base wants. The base is hungry for virtue-signaling ideologues who hate democracy and love fascism, and the party is reflective of that, hence why there's so many of them in power. But I mean, with that being said... I still hope she loses her election. I just find it insufferable to hear her constituents bitch about her after they voted her in office. Now, to be fair, that person in particular quoted in that article voted for the Democrat for the first time in their lives uh, in 2022. So they didn't vote for her again. But still, I mean, it's not like she changed that much, much since she was elected. So. It's just insufferable. I mean, if you vote for a dumbass like Lauren Boebert, don't be surprised when she turns out to be exactly what she said she was and appeared to be. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a fucking duck. And by duck, I mean fascist election denier. But with that being said, I genuinely hope that Boebert loses her election because the less insufferable freaks that we have in power, the better off our country will be. But like, even if this one Republican is defeated in 2024, that doesn't mean like the problem of fascism is gone, obviously. Obviously, it'd be nice to just have, like, one less fascist in power, but we'll leave that there.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Vagina.
2: You have said from the beginning that that massacre had to be responded to, that Israel had to invade. But now it's been 100 days. It's 23,000 Palestinian civilian lives, according to reports. The hostages, 134 hostages, six Americans included, have been there for all this time. Things have changed. Doesn't Israel now have to wind this down? Isn't that what you want?
6: Well, we all want to see this conflict end as quickly as possible. We all want to see the suffering uh, of people who are caught in the middle end as quickly as possible. Um, It's vital that Israel be able to do everything possible to ensure that October 7th never happens again. And it's made good progress toward that uh, that objective.
0: That was an embarrassing and borderline incoherent attempt by Secretary Blinken to try to justify Israel's ongoing genocide in Gaza, which he supports, by the way, hence why he's trying to justify it. And I mean, how exactly are they closer to ensuring another October 7th never happens again? What does that even mean? They have slaughtered 23,000 people, nearly 10,000 of which are children, by the way, and the remaining Gazans who survived their indiscriminate bombing campaign, who have lost everything, including family members, are going to be more susceptible to radicalization than ever before. So it seems to me that they're no more capable of preventing this now than they were on October 6th because so much more people hate them because of what they're doing in Gaza. And when he says that they've made good progress towards that goal, he's just lying. I mean, assuming that their goal was to eliminate Hamas and not the Palestinian people altogether, there's a reason why they haven't done that yet, contrary to what he's saying here. And as Ishan Tharoor of the Washington Post explains, Hamas is entrenched and difficult to defeat. Even after waging one of the most intense heavy military campaigns in recent history, Israel has only neutralized a fraction of the militant group's armed strength, and in the process, it has ravaged the embattled territory, where Hamas has held sway, displaced close to 90% of the population, flattened whole neighborhoods, triggered a sprawling humanitarian disaster, and found itself flailing in a losing battle for global public opinion. So, explain to me again how they're closer to that goal, Blinken? They're not. He's full of shit. But it gets worse because he tries to give us some optimism that things are getting better currently, if you could believe that. He actually says this, by the way. Uh, but as he says this, he's leaving out a crucial, crucial component to what's happening in Gaza.
2: You say they've made significant progress, but yet an, an important minister, Gallant, said they are about to attack Yunis in the south very strongly. And there are people there who haven't even been moved back to the north.
6: So we've seen now a phase down of the operations in the north. Uh, that's important. We've seen the uh, withdrawal of a significant number of forces, of Israeli forces that were in Gaza, uh, particularly again in the north, uh, where they've uh, achieved a lot. And as I said, we want to see this conflict come to an end as quickly as possible, uh, consistent with Israel's objective of making sure that October 7th doesn't happen again.
0: Spoken like a true NPC that's incapable of deviating away from his scripted dialogue tree. Just insufferable. And I cannot take the gaslighting. Now, it'd be one thing if the fighting stopped altogether in the North and Gazans were able to return to their homes. But what is there to return to? He doesn't address this. They have nothing to go back to because what's left is uninhabitable, as the UN's humanitarian chief put it. Quote, Currently in Gaza, infectious diseases are spreading rapidly with little to no clean water in the region, while there are only a few doctors left at the few hospitals that are still open and medication and medical supplies are extremely scarce. Hospitals are only able to respond to the worst and most horrific emergencies, with over 10 children having to have one or both legs amputated on average every day, often without anesthesia. Food is extremely scarce in Gaza due to Israel's blockade of food and destruction of agricultural land. Quote, famine is around the corner, Griffiths said. A recent UN-backed report by global food researchers found that the entire population is currently facing an acute hunger crisis, while the entire population will be facing famine in the next six months, if Israel's starvation campaign continues. But according to Blinken, you know, everything is fine. It's going to be okay because the fighting has stopped in the north and, um, They can go back home now to rubble and dirt and diseases. It's just, it's so hard to hear these details and not feel furious when you hear the way that the Biden administration is trying to justify this. This is a genocide, full stop, funded by our tax dollars. And if Israel doesn't kill them directly with bombs, Gazans may die indirectly due to starvation and a lack of potable water also inflicted by Israel. Because remember, they're the ones in control of the water supply in Gaza. Minister Galant announced collective punishment at the start of this siege. And despite all of these facts, members of the Biden administration are pretending as if they're not privy to the same information that we're all privy to. They're pretending as if they don't see the same videos that we all see. And to make matters worse, members of Biden's administration is dismissing South Africa's genocide case against Israel at the ICJ. Case in point.
6: As you know, the uh, you dismissed a few days ago the case that brought by South Africa against Israel at the ICJ. Did you read the indictment? And if you did, do you believe that cutting off water, electricity, and fuel on a civilian population does not constitute a war crime by itself, nothing else? Yes, I read
5: the indictment, and as I said, and I, we stand by what we, what we
0: said about this, we find it without merit, and we found, find it counterproductive, and I'll leave it
6: there. We believe the submission against Israel to the International Court of Justice distracts the world from all of these important efforts. And moreover, the charge of genocide is meritless. It's particularly galling given that those who are attacking Israel Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, as well as their supporter Iran continue to openly call for the annihilation of Israel and the mass murder of Jews.
0: Brilliant, big-brained logic there. See, even though Israel is currently literally in the process of annihilating Palestinians in Gaza as we speak, well, Hezbollah and the Houthis say that they want to annihilate Israel, therefore, they're the same thing. He acts like we're children, like we're not going to question what he says, and a lot of people will take what he says as if it's the gospel, but people with brains can see that he is lying. And furthermore, saying something is one thing, but doing something is an entirely different thing. Israel is doing the annihilation. Israel is doing the genocide right now. So regardless of what these other actors say they want to do to Israel, Israel is the one that is doing the thing that is bad right now that you are supporting and as infuriating as it is to see the U.S. just dismiss South Africa's legitimate claim of genocide against Israel, it's not surprising because of course they're going to say that because they're not merely defending Israel by dismissing this case they're defending themselves as well because of course they are just as culpable as Israel here not only does the US supply them with the bombs that they drop on the heads of children in Gaza but they also provide them with cover on the UN Security Council and gaslight all of the public at Israel's behest as you're seeing in this video former President Mike Pence even signed bombs Israel fired into South Lebanon so I mean this is our doing we're, we're part of this now so if Israel were to be held accountable by the international community they won't be The U.S. would also have to be held accountable as well as a co-conspirator. But that's not going to happen either. But the Biden administration is facing at least a minimal level of accountability in terms of him having to defend his administration's actions here, or I should say, in action to a degree, but again, we're participating fully. But as Prem of The Intercept explains, in late December, 77 groups representing tens of thousands of lawyers, civil society leaders, and activists from six continents filed an amicus brief in a lawsuit that Palestinian human rights organizations, residents of Gaza, and U.S. citizens with family members impacted by Israel's ongoing assault brought against the Biden administration. In the amicus brief, which is an avenue for groups not directly involved in a lawsuit to give the court information, to consider in its ruling, the organizations argue that the plaintiffs established that a genocide or serious risk of genocide of Palestinians in Gaza is occurring. They also argue that the U.S. is violating its duties under international law to prevent and not be complicit in genocide, and that those U.S. failures contribute to the erosion of long and widely held norms of international law, including the Genocide Convention and Universal Declaration of Human Rights, both established in 1948 in the wake of World War War ii the lawsuit is headed for a hearing in the u.s district court for the northern district of california later this month meanwhile in an 84-page complaint brought by south africa israel faces charges of genocide at the international court of justice at the hague now i wish i could tell you that i'm optimistic that these cases will bring justice but i'm not because even if justice prevailed in the best case scenario here there still isn't going to be justice. Hell, even if Biden was literally found guilty of complicity with Israel's war crimes, nothing is going to come of that. Because in this country, we will go to the greatest lengths imaginable to protect our war criminals. And I say this because, as journalist Abby Martin points out, Bush passed a law known as the Hague Invasion Act, which says the U.S. can invade the Netherlands to prevent American personnel from being charged with war crimes. Yeah. And even in the absence of this law, uh, I still don't expect any U.S. war criminals to ever be held accountable for anything ever because, I mean, if Henry Kissinger died without seeing a single day in prison, then U.S. officials can basically get away with anything. Including literal mass murder. But that's not to say that Biden isn't being held accountable because he's already paid a large political price. Polls currently show that he is losing to Donald Trump in head-to-head matchups, which is terrifying. And currently everywhere he goes, he is reminded that he has blood on his hands, case in point. Ceasefire!
4: That's all right. That's all- That's all right, that's all right. Look, folks. I understand their. I understand their passion, and I've been quietly working. I've been quietly working with the Israeli government to get them to reduce and significantly get out of Gaza. Using all that I can to do.
0: He's trying so hard, yet he bypassed Congress to sell Israel more weapons that he knows they're going to use on innocent civilians, including journalists. And on that note, human rights groups like Freedom House, for example, don't think he's doing enough to address Israel's assassination and targeting of journalists because, predictably, his administration is pretending like there's no evidence that Israel is targeting journalists. And that is incredibly deceitful, but it's not surprising because the stance of this administration is to play dumb. Pretend like you don't actually know what's happening or pretend as if, you know, people are just being a little bit too hyperbolic here with the evidence that they're seeing. Playing dumb has been their strategy this whole time and that's not going to change. Now, Biden's liberal defenders defend him by pretending as if he's hopeless in this situation and there's nothing that he can do. But that is factually incorrect. Republican administrations, as immoral as they are, have literally done more to rein in Israel's brutality than Biden has done. As Shreda Parsi explained in an op-ed for The Nation, quote, In 1982, President Ronald Reagan was, quote, disgusted by Israeli bombardment of Lebanon. He stopped the transfer of cluster munitions to Israel and told Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin in a phone call that this is a holocaust. Reagan demanded that Israel withdraw its troops from Lebanon, Begin caved. 20 minutes after their phone call, Begin ordered a halt on attacks. So ask yourself, why won't Biden do the same thing that Reagan did? Why won't he just pick up the phone and tell them to stop? It's because he doesn't want to. That's why we call him Genocide Joe. He's not just getting strung along begrudgingly by Israel. He is a willing participant in their ethnic cleansing and genocide of the people of Gaza. He is culpable. He has blood on his hands. He is a war criminal. But even though he's still currently in the driver's seat, that could soon change if he doesn't meaningfully rein in Israel. Because as Akbar Shahid Ahmed argues in the Huffington Post, Biden's continued support of Israel risks the U.S. getting pulled into a broader conflict in the region if Israel's actions in Lebanon end up pulling in Iran or other countries. And I mean, if that happens, this will spiral out of control even more and all but guarantee his defeat in November because Americans don't want to see another war. And that means that if he loses, Trump is going to take over as commander in chief and pour gasoline on the fire lit by Israel and things will get exponentially worse fast. It's just such a hopeless situation here because the American people are saying one thing and politicians are all collectively choosing to just ignore what they want. And who cares if if the American people were in support of this. Like, it doesn't matter what public opinion says. Genocide is wrong, period. Like, we shouldn't have to gauge where the population is at when it comes to the mass slaughter of civilians. They should just not do it because killing is fucking bad. I mean, Jesus Christ. I I just, it's so frustrating. And it feels gross to even talk about genocide in the context of, oh, well, I wonder how this is going to affect Biden's presidential prospects. But I mean, you would think that Biden's ambivalence towards the suffering of innocent Palestinians would not extend towards his electoral prospects, but he genuinely seems uninterested and even trying to win back the people who he's lost who are outraged about his genocide in Gaza. But I mean, regardless of how this pans out, one thing is clear. The Biden administration's gaslighting of Americans is not working, and I expect him to continue to be ride or die with Israel and continue to gaslight us. But I mean, just stop. If you're going to keep doing this, stop lying to us because the people who support you, they're going to support you no matter what, even if you stop feigning concern for Gazans that you're supporting the slaughter of. Just stop. Drop the pretense that you're concerned about civilian casualties because you're not. And I say that because that's what your actions dictate. You might say some really nice things and maybe caution Israel publicly that they should be a little bit more careful while not actually looking at what they're doing and seeing the evidence. But your actions are what I care about. And that tells me you don't give a shit.
1: Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook you can also find audio versions of the show on spotify apple podcasts soundcloud iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms and before you go consider supporting the show on patreon or through youtube memberships you get early access to most videos invites to monthly live chats with mike and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode there are other ways to support the show you can like subscribe turn on notifications and share our content on social media